Chapter 2 of Stories from the Trenches Funny Tales the Soldiers Tell This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tommy Hersant, Carlsbad, California. Stories from the Trenches Funny Tales the Soldiers Tell by Carlton Case. Chapter 2 Franco Yanko Romances and Cute, Wasn't She? and everyone to his taste. The story is told of a British Tommy, who could not make up his mind whether to acquire a farm or a village store by marriage somewhere in France. He could have either, but not both. Dispatches say that the bands have already been read for some of our Sammies, and when the war is over we'll have some sturdy Yankee citizens. Difference of language seems to form no bar. In fact, the kindly efforts of each to learn the language of the other acts as an aid. It must be said that the British so far have rather the best of it. They have beaten the Yankees to the altar of Hymen, but they had the field to themselves for some time. By the end of the war the Americans may have caught up, for love and war have always walked hand in hand with Uncle Sam's boys. Nevertheless, the British have a big start, for Judson C. Wolliver, writing to the New York Sun from Paris, says that in Calais hundreds of young English mechanics have married French girls. The writer tells of being accosted by a young man from the States at the corner of the Avenue de l'Opera, and one of those funny little crooked streets that run into it. Breezily the American introduced himself and said, "'Say, do you happen to know a little cafe right uh, around here called the—' "'Blame it, I can't even remember what that sign looked like it, it was trying to spell.' I admitted that the description was a trifle too vague to fit into my geographic scheme of Paris. Uh, "'Because,' he went on, there's a girl there that talks United States, and she's been waiting on me lately. I get all the best of everything there, and don't eat anywhere else. But this morning I took a walk, and coming from a new direction, I can't locate the place. I promised her I'd be in for breakfast this morning. Uh, something nifty, I ventured, uh, being willing to encourage that line of conversation, whereat he plainly bridled. She's a nice girl, he said. Family were real people before the war. Learned to talk United States and England. Went to school there a while. Why, she wouldn't let me walk home with her last night, but she said maybe she would tonight. There isn't anybody quite so adaptable as the young Frenchwoman. Only in the last few months has Paris seen any considerable number of English-speaking soldiers, because earlier in the war the British military authorities kept their men pretty religiously away from the alleged temptations of the gay capital. Later they discovered that Paris was rather a better place than London for the men to go. So the French girls— 
in shops and cafes have been learning English recently at an astounding rate. They began the study because of the English invasion. They have continued it with increased zeal, because since the Americans have been coming, it has been profitable. To be able to say, at the boy, in prompt and sympathetic response to ham and eggs, is worth fifty centimes at the lowest. The capacity to manage little casual conversation and give a direction on the street is certain to draw a franc. Besides, there aren't going to be many men left after the war in France. Mademoiselle, figuring that there are a couple of million Britishers in the country and a million or maybe two of Americans coming, has her own views about the prospect that the next generation French women may be old maids. In Calais there is a big industrial establishment to which the British military authorities have brought great numbers of skilled mechanics to make repairs to machinery, reconstruct the outworn war gear, tinker obstreperous motor vehicles, and, in short, keep the whole machinery and construction side of the war going. Most of the mechanics who were sent there were young men. Calais testifies to the ability of the Frenchwoman to make the most of their attractions. English officers tell me that hundreds of young Englishmen settled in Calais for the duration have married French girls and settled into homes. They intend, in a large proportion of cases, to remain there, too. The same thing is going on in Boulogne, which is to all intents and purposes nowadays as much an English as a French port. Everywhere English is spoken, and by nobody is it learned so quickly as by the young women. Hmm. Oh, French women have always had the reputation of making themselves agreeable to visited men, but one is quite astonished to learn the number of Englishmen who married French women even before the war. The balance is a little imperfect, for the records show that there are not nearly as many Frenchmen marrying English girls. But says the writer in the sun a new generation of girls of marriageable age has arrived with the war and not only in the military industrial and naval base towns are the british marrying these french women but even in the country near the front there are incipient romances afoot behind every mile of the trench line Two related changes in French life are coming with the war, which make these international marriages easier. Both relate to the dot, or dowry, system. On the one side there are many French girls who have lost their dots, and have small prospect of reacquiring the marriage portion. 
to live in these strenuous times is about all they can hope for. For these, the free-handed Americans, Canadians, and Australians look like good prospects for a well-to-do marriage. Even the British Tommy, although he enjoys no such income as the Americans and colonials, is nevertheless quite likely to have a bit of private income from the folks back in Blighty to supplement the meagre pay he draws. The portionless French maid sees in these prosperous young men who have come to fight for her country not only the saviors of the nation, but a possibility of emancipation from the dot system that has broken down in these times. On the other side, there are more than a few young women in France who must be rated good catches today, although their dots would have been unimportant before the war. A girl who has inherited the little property of her family because father and brothers all lie beneath the white crosses along the Marna, not infrequently finds herself possessed of a little fortune she could never have expected under other conditions. Many of these, likewise, bereft of sweethearts as well as relatives, have been married to English and colonial soldiers or workmen, and pretty soon we'll be learning that their partiality for America, uh, for there is such a partiality, and it is a decided one, will be responsible for many alliances in that direction. How it will all work out in the end is only to be guessed at as yet. The British officers, who have been observing these Anglo-French romances for a long time, assert that the British Tommy, who weds a Frenchwoman, is quite likely to settle in France, particularly if his bride brings him a village house or a few hectares of land in the country. On the other hand, the colonials insist on taking their French brides back to New Zealand or Canada or wherever it may be, India, Shanghai, somewhere in Africa, no matter, the colonial is a colonial forever. Hmm. He has no idea of going back to the cramped conditions of England. He likes the motherland all right, is willing to fight for it, but wants room to swing a bull by the tail, and that isn't to be had in England, he assures you. Probably the Americans will be like the colonials. Those who find French wives will take them home after the war. That a good many of them will marry French wives can hardly be doubted. Yes, the French girls like the American boys. But there is another scene. It is that of the country billet, which varies from a chateau to a cellar, uh, the ideal one, uh, from the point of view of a billeting officer. Uh, being a bed for every officer, and nice clean straw for the men. Get this picture of our village somewhere in France, up back of the line, as drawn by Sterling Helig in the Los Angeles Times. 
A French valley full of empty villages close to the fighting line. Hmm. No city of tents, no mass of shack constructions. The village streets are empty. Geese and ducks waddle to the pond and Main Street. It is four o'clock a.m. Bugle! Up and down the valley in the empty villages there is a moving picture transformation. The streets are alive with American soldiers tumbling out of village-dwelling houses. Every house is full of boarders. Every village family has given joyfully one, two, three of its best rooms for the cot-beds of the Americans. Barns and wagon-houses are transformed to dormitories. They are learning French. They are adopted by the family. Sammy's in the kitchen with the mother and the daughter. Bugle! They are piling down the main street to their own American breakfast, cooked in the open, eaten in the open, this fine weather. In front of houses are canvas reservoirs of filtered drinking water. The duck pond in Main Street has been lined with cement. The streets are swept every morning. There are flowers. The village was always picturesque. Now it is beautiful. Chaplain's clubs are set up in empty houses. The only large tent is that of the YMCA, and it is camouflaged against enemy observers by being painted in streaked gray-green-brown to melt into the colors of the hill against which it is backed up. Practically invisible, its canteen on wheels is loaded with towels, soap, razors, chocolate, crackers, games, newspapers, novels, and tobacco. At crossroads, the little flat Y-M-C-A tents, painted grass in earth color, serve as stations for swift autos carrying packages and comforts. In them are found coffee, tea, and chocolate, ink, pens, letter paper, and envelopes, and a big sign reminds Sammy that you promised your mother a letter. Write it today. All decent and in order. Otherwise the men could never have gone through the strenuous coaching for the front so quickly and well. In our village, not a duck or goose or chicken has failed to respond to the roll call in the past forty days, which is more that can be said of a French company billet or many a British a fruit hung red and yellow in the orchards till the gathering. I don't say the families had as many bushels as a good year, but there is no criticism. In a word, Sammy has good manners. He looks on these French people with a sort of awed compassion. They had a lot to stand, he whispers, and the villagers who are no fools as wily as a villager, runs the French proverb, uh, quite appreciate these fine shades. And the house-dog wags his tail at the sight of khaki, as the boys come loafing in the cool of the back yard after midday dinner. In the evening the family plays cards in the kitchen, and here no effort is necessary to induce the girls to learn English, for, although they pretend that they are teaching French, they are really, very slyly, picking up 
English while they are being introduced to the mysteries of draw poker. Uh, says the writer in the Times, and so it goes like this when they play poker in the kitchen. The old French father, the pretty daughter, the flapper girl cousin, and three roughnecks. One boy has the sheets of conversational French in twenty days, and really thinks that he is conversing. Madame, mademoiselle, maman, monsieur, papa, or mon uncle, pass the buck and get busy. You will have cards? How many? Business. Three cards? Five cards? We oui. one card? No card? Un the dealer six cards? Here, Bill, wake up. Bill, sleep. Ave vous au mai. Bill, oui, mademoiselle, I I slept rotten last night. I mean, I was Trey Jenny Parksky. That darned engine was pumping up the duck pond. Speak French? Play cards? Vasunk? Adis? E encore five centimes. I'm, I'm broke. Uh, just slip me a quarter, Wilfred, to buy jetums. In a sweet and plaintive voice. I have three pair, mon uncle, and he say skidoo. I am stung it. I have six cards. Uh, yes, you're out of it. I'm sorry, mademoiselle. Come up. Come up. Comment come up. Stung it has become French. Thus does Sammy enrich the language of Voltaire. His influence works equally on pronunciation. There is a tiny French village named H-I-N-G-E-S on which hinges the following. From the days of Jean d'Arc, the natives have pronounced it Ange in one syllable, with the sound of A as in ham. But Sammy naturally pronounces it hinges as it is spelled one hinge, two hinges on the door or window. So, the natives, deeming that such godlings can't be wrong on any detail, go about now showing off their knowledge to the ignorant and saying with a point of affection, I have been to Inges. I should not wonder if some of these boys would marry. They might do worse. The old man owns 218 acres, and nobody knows what converted French fives. A Sammy, too, has money. A single regiment of American Marines has subscribed for $60,000 worth of French war bonds since their arrival in the zone. This, in spite of their depositing most of their money with the United States government. Sammy sits in the group around the front door in the twilight. Up and down the main street are a hundred such mixed groups. Already he has found a place, a family. He is somebody. And what American lad ever sat in such a group at such a time without 
a desire to sing. And little difference does it make whether the song be sentimental or rag. Sing he must, and sing he does. The old-timers, like I was seen Nellie home and down by the old mill stream, proved to be the favorites of the listening French girls, for they will listen by the hour to the soldiers' choruses. Uh, they do not sing much themselves, for too many of their young men are dead. Uh, but finally, when the real war songs arrived, they would join timidly in the chorus. Hip, 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 and slopping through Belgium, electrified the natives. <laughs> and the Times says, To hear a pretty French girl singing, Ep, 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 is about the limit. A singing is fostered by the high command, who can estimate the influence of Tipperary. <laughs> to me, American civilian in Paris, its mere melody will always stir those noble sentiments we felt as the first wounded English came to the American ambulance hospital of Newelly. Oh, for many a year to come, Tipperary will make British eyes wet, when, in the witching hour of twilight, it evokes the khaki figures in the glare of the skyline and the dead who are unforgotten. Who can estimate, for France, the influence of that terrible song of Verdun, Passoon Pas? Or who can forget the goose-step march to death of the Prussian guard at Ypres, intoning Deutschland über alles? It is desired that the American army be a singing army. Uh, so ran the first words of a communication to the American public of Paris asking for three thousand copies of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, noble marching strophes of Julia Ward Howe, which, 1864-1865, fired the hearts of the northern armies of 1864-1865. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. They are heard now on the American front, in France. One regiment has adopted it as our marching song in memory of the American martyrs of liberty. And in our village you may hear a noble French translation of it, torn off by inspired French grandmothers. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I have read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Oh, bear with me to hear three lines of this notable translation. Again. They are by a woman, Charlotte Holmes Crawford, of whom I had never previously heard mention. Uh, they are word for word vibrating. Je l'ai entre vous que plan, et sur le cercle j'ai des 
On a irige son udel parle, treest e monne sham. Ije rolu son just la justement à la flemme di flu flamban. Son jour, son jours je broche. It's rather serious, you say, uh, rather solemn. <laughs> Sammy doesn't think so. Cute, wasn't she? He was a young subaltern. One evening the pretty nurse had just finished making him comfortable for the night, and before going off duty asked, Is there anything I can do for you before I leave? Dear little two-stars replied, well, yes, I'd like very much to be kissed. Good night. Nurse rustled to the door. I, I just wait till I call the orderly, she said. He does all the rough work here. Everyone to his taste. Visitor. It's a terrible war, this young man, a terrible war. Mike, badly wounded. "'Tis that, sir, a terrible war, but tis better than no war at all." End of chapter 2 Reading by Tommy Hersant, Carlsbad, California